0: Hey guys, Anna Victoria here, and I'm so excited for you to join me on my podcast, Your Best Life. I'm the CEO and founder of the Fit Body app, a fitness influencer, and a personal trainer. Every week, I'm going to have a special guest that will share their unique experience and unique story to share how they learned how to live their best life, even if they're still working on it, since we are all a work in progress. I can't wait to help you learn how to create your best life. Welcome back to another episode of Your Best Life podcast, Anna Victoria here, and of course my husband, Luca.
1: Ciao a tutti.
0: (laughs) So today our guest is Alan Aragon, who has over 20 years of experience as a nutrition researcher and educator. He maintains a private practice with clients including Pete Sampras, Derek Fisher, and Stone Cold Steve Austin. And he writes the popular Alan Aragon Research Review, or AARR. I am so excited to dive into this conversation with Alan. Me
1: too. I'm super (laughs) excited. You know, I really like, you know, the part of the debunking and really Mm -hmm. the pure research. What does the research say? Because information is very accessible. To everyone.
0: There's information overload, actually. this information
1: overload. Exactly. So which one is the correct one, though? Because you see and then you side with this, you know, with someone and you don't know if that's correct. So having Mm -hmm. a scientist on the podcast, someone that does research and every search is peer reviewed and they can present you with some facts. I think that's incredibly important to have a kind of like an anchor. You know, you know where the truth stands. For some topics, right. And some topics are still discussed and, you know, but that's, I think it's really, really important for sure.
0: You know, when I first started my fitness journey, I just, you know, today kind of how we have the information overload, you know, I don't want to say back in 2012, it wasn't that long ago, but in terms of technology and, you know, information, I, I do think that a lot has changed since then. But, you know, I just really had access to Google and research and I am i don't have a science background, you know, so right. sometimes it was hard to really dive into, well, what study do I trust? And I remember finding studies for both sides completely, 100 percent saying, well, this is the way in right. a study, in yeah. an article saying, no, this is the way it's the complete opposite. You almost pick a side of just whichever one you know, you feel like right, yeah. is the best. But like totally, at the end of the yeah. day, while, you know, I think personal experience is so important, you know, finding out what these studies actually say, and like you said, peer reviewed.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: But, you know, if the science says this, you know, I, I, I definitely as a fitness professional want to you know align myself with what the researchers say so anyways with that being said we could go on and on um i can't wait for you guys to hear my discussion with alan aragon and here it is
1: i have a request can you ask him about the what he thinks about the nutritional documentaries that are gaining so much popularity i really want to know what alan thinks about those documentaries
0: it'll be a controversial mention for sure but absolutely will i will do (laughs) great Hi, Alan. How are you?
2: I'm doing great, Anna. Thank you so much for inviting me on.
0: Of course. Thank you so much for coming on. There's so much that I want to dive in with you. But first, do you want to let everyone know who you are and a bit about your background?
2: I am a researcher mainly in nutrition in in sort of the sports and fitness nutrition realm. Uh, I was a trainer for like a decade before I was mainly immersed in the nutrition side for another decade. So I have a good like 25 years in the business and I've been doing research full-time for several years now. I try to be as science-based as possible and being an evidence-based practitioner is not all about just the PubMeds, but also filling in some of the gray area or the vast sheets of gray area with what we see in the trenches in the field. And we kind of bridge those gaps that are plenty in the research world. So that's evidence-based practice, nutrition, fitness, and in a nutshell, that's what I'm all about.
0: Was there another path that led you to becoming more of a, a researcher versus a trainer? How did that transition happen?
2: Yeah. Embarrassingly, I was much better at sitting down and flapping my jaws than I was at, <laughs> at doing actual uh, personal training. <laughs> yeah. So I was better <laughs> at, at writing and teaching. Uh, I enjoyed training. I, I did it for, like I said, I did it for a decade. You know, I think that once every decade, your interests kind of evolve a little bit. And so after the yeah. first decade of hands-on personal training in the gyms and in, in homes, I just sort of discovered that nutrition had this really interesting and engaging element where it was actually kind of fun to dig into the research and investigate whether the various claims in the media uh, had any credence to them. In graduate school, I got really um, immersed in the, the science and research world. So, so yeah, that's kind of how that evolution Amazing. happened. And in a nutshell, yes.
0: When I first started my fitness journey, it was 2012. And Instagram wasn't really a thing back then. Um, That was when I created my first Instagram fitness account um, because I was starting my fitness journey, but I was completely anonymous. And so all I had to turn to for what do I do about this whole fitness journey thing was Google, you know, when trying to find studies and research and your name was always popping up.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and so, but yeah. fast forward to today, now I follow you on social media. I can keep up so much more with what you're publishing. Of course, you, you also have a, um, a membership platform, right? If you want to talk a bit about the ARR and also just if, if you feel your job has changed at all with the, you know, explosion of social media.
2: Social media has had a really huge influence on my career in nutrition research. And you could even say that um, social media, the earlier um, format of it, like the, for example, the bodybuilding.com message boards, those mm-hmm. forums, um, that really... Actually, started um, the, the snowballing effect of, of my research career because that's where all of the nutrition debates kind of started. And that's where I just immersed myself in trying to answer people's questions. And of course, e fighting and arguing and debating with various oh, people yeah. <laughs> on the forums. Social media has been pivotal. In, in my research and, and education career, mm-hmm. there have been major milestones that have occurred in nutrition research and in the evidence-based nutrition world, uh, pretty much directly as a result of social media facilitating exchanges between people who I never otherwise would have talked to. So it's really yeah. interesting how that evolved.
0: There's so many amazing nuggets of, you know, information, education, and science that I get just from your Instagram, alone, <laughs> which is so amazing. Cool. All right, let's start with protein. So okay. I, I actually just did a story uh, the other day. I was talking about recovery and what's the best things to do for recovery. And one of them was being sure that you're getting enough protein. And I said, you know, 0.7 grams to one gram per pound you weigh and of course, anytime I post that, I get inundated with DMs of that's way too much protein, that are you sure it's not per kilo that you weigh? And I I forget that I need to point out each time that that, you know, reference is for people who are strength training and wanting to maximize muscle gain. So, yeah. with that being said, is that the recommendation that you would give or what what would you say is the the best uh, amount of protein for someone that is on a fitness journey.
2: Yeah, it's important to specify the goal and the population. The general population who may be at best interested in recreational fitness, uh, they're just fine with a range of 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. when we're looking at protein intake. Mm Um, however, those who are a little bit further along on the athletic spectrum and folks who are looking to specifically gain muscle, then the appropriate range would be what you mentioned, which in kilograms would be 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight, which you mentioned is 0.7 to 1.0 grams uh, per pound of body weight. And, and people in the general population do kind of freak out at the idea of doing 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound of body weight in protein intake. And so what you can do to sort of set them at ease is is let them know that we're looking at more athletic populations and people with uh, athletic goals that are centered around building muscle tissue. But you can also say that this range applies to people sort of in the middle of the spectrum, people who are Mm -hmm. of relatively normal body weight. close to the mean so if somebody is quite far from the average in terms of body weight let's say somebody um is highly overweight or or somebody is obese or severely obese then we can base protein on target body weight that way you know if you say 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound of your goal body weight or your target body weight then it can be a a little bit more reasonable number that doesn't overshoot so much.
0: Right. And what would you say would be that threshold for someone where they would be considered overweight or have a high enough body fat percentage where they should be the target weight? Should it be like if they have over 30% body fat or what would you say?
2: That's a a really good question. And and it's a difficult question to put a number on because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of assumptions built in to body fat percent. I would just say if, if somebody perceives themselves as being overweight and they're uncomfortable with uh, the amount of protein that they're assigned, then they can just go straight to basing protein on target body weight. So they, they wouldn't necessarily have to worry about exactly what, what their body fat percent might be. So if their goal is weight loss, then they can just sort of skip over that kind of uh, perceptive quantification and just go straight to, okay. So my goal body weight, I'm gonna base protein uh, um, on the basis of 0. 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound of that goal body weight. Even if people are trying to gain weight, they can still right. base it on target body weight right. w- without worrying about their present body comp.
0: I love that you point that out because there actually is a, a good amount of people, I mean, obviously men, because you know they're trying to bulk up, but women too. You know, there's a lot of women that, you know, I feel like we don't kind of serve those scenarios enough in the discussion of, you know, gaining weight. So, um, all right. How about starvation mode? This is a stance that I have changed my position on, you know, from when I first, Mm -hmm. you know, started my fitness journey, I bought into the starvation mode hype, (laughs) you know, um, as I have, you know, learned more and been following you and, you know, reading (sighs) about your research. I, I now have a different position, but yeah, I would, I'd love for you to talk about that.
2: Okay, first of all, you're such a nerd for reading my work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, it, I see it as a part of my job, but I'm, I am personally interested in it, but also professionally. God, so thank you. You're
2: <laughs> such a nerd. Okay, so <laughs> um, starvation mode is the idea that your metabolism slows down um, the harder you diet. So the harder and the longer that you're running some sort of hypocaloric conditions or some sort of dieting conditions where you're trying to lose weight then the lore is that your metabolism slows down and the starvation mode uh phenomenon how it's, how it's commonly described is that your metabolism basically kind of comes to a halt and then you can no longer lose further weight no matter how low you you cut your calories and so uh, the long story short on that is your Metabolism does decrease as a result of dieting. And uh, there, there are two main elements to our metabolism. So uh, metabolism can be divided into resting energy expenditure and non-resting energy expenditure. So our resting energy expenditure is sometimes called our resting metabolic rate or basal metabolic rate. Those terms can be interchanged. Our resting metabolic rate is the amount of calories rec- required in a day to fuel our vital processes and keep us alive.
0: So, essentially, if you're laying in bed, right? right? Not doing anything. Okay.
2: Correct. So, the other part of our metabolism is our non resting energy expenditure. So, that includes our exercise energy expenditure and our non-exercise energy expenditure. So basically our physical activity. Okay, so, so there's exercise physical activity and then there's physical activity of just daily living that we are sometimes conscious of and sometimes unconscious of. So that is our non-resting energy expenditure. So we got resting energy expenditure, non-resting energy expenditure. Okay, so here's the point that I, that I wanna make with decreases in metabolism as a result of dieting. Resting energy expenditure will go down, but only mainly to the extent that we lose lean body mass. So um, there are some aspects of resting energy expenditure that go down that are independent of our losses in metabolically active tissue. But those drops are relatively minor. The major drops that happen in metabolism happen within our non-resting energy expenditure. So they happen within our conscious activity levels, our our formal exercise and our subconscious activity levels, or what some people would call uh, our non-exercise activity thermogenesis or our NEAT levels. So NEAT would encompass everything from whatever your occupation entails, whether you're sitting at a desk or whether you're a server somewhere or whether you're uh, a trainer at a gym or whether you're, you know, <laughs> whatever your occupation might entail. In addition to um, non-occupational movement, uh, in addition to fidgeting, just random movements through the day, some people are just natural fidgeters. And, and these things add up in the non-resting energy expenditure department. So, So you've got these two major compartments of metabolism and it's not the resting energy expenditure that you can, you can <laughs> point the finger to for, in quotes, starvation mode. So, right. so yeah, I, I had to go through that laborious uh, uh, illustration <laughs> because it's, it's necessary because a lot of people don't realize that. So now here's an important point I want to make about that. With non-resting energy expenditure, there can be drastic, drastic differences in um, somebody who has a high NEAT level and somebody who has a low NEAT level. So NEAT being non-exercise activity thermogenesis, the, the jargony way to say it. So there can be, when I say drastic differences, I mean, it's common for people to have 500,000, 1500 calories difference in their NEAT wow. levels through the day. And I'm talking about people who are the same body size so um you can take a dieter and just say all right get on this diet let's say it's it's something typical like 1200 calories or something like that okay get on this diet for three months just go do it (laughs) uh what will happen typically is the person's meat levels will drop drastically over time and so the person will mistakenly think oh gosh i've got a slow metabolism When the reality is, okay, well, the part of your metabolism that has drastically gone down is not your resting metabolism, but your non-resting metabolism. And so this is an important point for people to understand. And there are other things that tie in with, in quotes, starvation mode as well. So starvation mode, we'll take a drastic example. Let's say somebody is committing to 1,200 calories a day. And they're sitting at, let's say, 100 80 pounds and it just doesn't make sense right it doesn't make sense right. that somebody is maintaining 180 eating 1200 calories a day and uh, supposedly tracking everything
0: right.
2: what i've done in practice and and what i've uh encouraged well suggested that some of my qualified colleagues do is remove all chance of human error um, and just have the uh, the subject or the client just remove all sources of human error and just have them go on like a meal replacement or a packaged food thing where it's twelve hundred calories. They have no say in the measuring and the scooping and the heavy handed serving <laughs> of, right, of the right. diet and and just see what happens. Your body is is just fiercely defensive of of homeostasis. It's fiercely mm-hmm. defensive of survival. So what often goes unreported are binging episodes when people are dieting hard. So you can almost correlate the harder the diet to the more drastic the binge is. And binging is a very shame laden and embarrassing thing. So it often goes unreported. So it's not like your clients are, you know, consistently lying to you about binges. But a lot of the time, um, it's just super common for people to underreport caloric intake. There, there's a study by, uh, Lichtman and colleagues. I think it was 1999 ish, but anyway, Lichtman, um, they found out that subjects claiming to be diet resistant and claiming to, um, consume 12, an average of 1200 calories a day, they actually put them in the lab, put them under the microscope, so to speak and found out that they were under reporting caloric intake by over a 1000 calories a day. And so yeah, and, and, and their, oh. their actual resting metabolic rate was well within normal ranges, which is mm-hmm. the interesting part. So yeah, starvation mode to, to kind of like sum it up, it, it may exist with with some people in some very exceptional cases where th- there may be right. some severe. Uh, uh, thyroid dysfunction. And uh, you know, I've even looked into that and that still wouldn't explain these uh, drastically low intakes, these claimed drastically low intakes. But yeah, starvation mode is a matter of your neat dropping way down and or miss or under reporting. And it sucks Mm. to hear that for a lot of people who have put in so much effort and think they're doing everything right, but don't know what the heck is going on.
0: Yeah. I love that you point out the I don't know if it's the lack of reporting or just like not really truly, you know, including binges or whatever, because I I recently said, um, I really like personally, I'm a huge fan of tough love. Like I want you to give it to me, you know, tell it, give it to me straight that, Somehow, sometimes doesn't translate on social media because I don't want people to feel like I am bashing them or calling them out. You know, so it's not that I try to tiptoe around things, but I don't much want just want to come out and be like, "You guys just aren't doing it right," you know. Yeah. But I, I said recently, like, "Hey, what is in your My Fitness Pal or my your you know food tracker?" That's not what matters. What matters is what you're actually eating. So if you're tracking for four days and you're on point and then on the weekends you go buck wild, you're probably not in a deficit like you think you are. You know, I will say that I still do tell girls, I encourage them, don't start out with more than a 500 caloric deficit because A, you don't want to pinhole yourself into such a, you know, a low calorie amount. And then if you ever need to cut, you're kind of stuck. Yeah. So it's an interesting topic, you know, because a lot of women will, you know, get get my do my uh, use my macro uh, calculator yeah. and they'll see the calories and they're like, oh, my gosh, I actually need eighteen hundred calories. But I've been eating twelve hundred this whole time, you know, and and it's an interesting topic. I could dive into, you know, into that for a lot longer. But let's go on to the next topic. So how about the claim of clean eating being superior? to eating foods that may not be as quote unquote clean. And, um, I'm going to also admit, I'm calling myself out a lot here today. (laughs) This was something, it was an area that when I started my fitness journey was like, oh, clean eating is it, that's where it's at. That's the secret to getting results. I now know that while clean may not be the best word to use, and some people, you know, don't love that, but eating minimally processed foods, you know, prioritizing that is great. Um, it will help you feel the best but it's not a, it's not necessarily the key to seeing progress so uh what has been your your research on that
2: that is such a huge topic oh my goodness <laughs> oh, oh man if you think I, I
0: notes version if you think
2: i can ramble with the other stuff my god um okay so one of the issues with clean eating is it's it's so difficult to define clean um you can define it but then Everyone will have their own personal definition of clean, so with what you mentioned about clean eating being minimally processed or, or minimally refined, that is a a solid definition, but other folks might might look at clean being uh low saturated fats or low cholesterol, or other people might think clean might be um organic grass fed <laughs> you know and, and, right. and, and things like that so you really kind of get into some slippery ground there because even if you were to define clean foods as foods as close to how they're found in nature as possible, you would still run into problems with foods that are very far removed from their original natural state, but are still nutritious and can and can still significantly contribute to a healthy diet. And we, we can Take a look at protein powder, for example, that is very mm-hmm. that That is some processed stuff that's highly removed from its original source, right. but it's also nutrient dense. And it can also be very helpful to programs that focus on not just performance and, and improvements in mm-hmm. body composition, muscle gain and fitnessy stuff, but also health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets, it gets kind of messy there. And another thing, another, another rabbit hole with the clean eating concept is that if you were to take, just compare foods in isolation from the rest of the diet, you can kind of run into problems by labeling this food clean and that food dirty, for example. So I, I like to use the example of uh, celery versus ice cream. So if we imagine that, let's say somebody is lactose tolerant, um, like if you were to just put celery and ice cream next to each other and give somebody a quiz, okay, wh- which is a clean food here? Which food is cleaner? And then they'd say, oh, well, celery is cleaner, cleaner than the ice cream. Okay, but now guess which food, if you were to paint a hypothetical scenario, which food would you actually live longer on before nutritional deficiencies set in if that was the only food you could eat? On a, on a desert island let's say well ice cream wouldn't last too, too long in a desert island right yeah. but you' but roll with this for a minute <laughs> it would actually be you would live longer on the ice cream than you would on the celery because the ice cream actually has uh it's incomplete but it actually has more essential nutrition than than the celery right then the question becomes okay what is actually so clean about? dying sooner on the celery versus eating your (laughs) dirty ice cream. So, so there are weird rabbit holes to go down with the clean food versus dirty food. And so the way that we can tie it together and be practical about this is if a diet consists of mostly whole foods and minimally refined foods, mostly being a very subjective and vague term. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of quantify it to the 80, 20, uh, principle. So, if if let's say ten to twenty, or up to twenty percent of your diet comes from the naughty foods or the bad foods, dirty, dirty foods, um, <laughs> <laughs> and the the eighty percent of your diet is from the clean or the whole and minimally refined foods, then for the majority of the population, that will work out to a diet that is sustainable, and it allows for some sort of respite from Spartan eating all week long with, with no break. So, um, but yeah, that, that's my take. on
0: it. When I started my journey early on and I, you know, I feel like that's also around 2012 is, you know, maybe it was before then, but in my world, that was when clean eating kind of really was, you know, rising up and becoming a thing and kind of having its own movement. Um, what I, the information I was receiving was that, okay, um, a calorie, is more than a calorie you know or that you know it's it's not just about the quantity but it's about what's inside and what's inside is going to impact your body's ability to burn fat so essentially that you could eat let's say two thousand calories of quote unquote clean minimally processed foods um and that your body would be able to burn fat more efficiently or lose fat or see more results more so than if you were eating less calories, but it was you know also inclusive of processed refined foods. Mm -hmm. So that is what I, that's the information that I had Mm -hmm. in the beginning and that I kind of, I don't want to say I latched onto it, but it it just, it made sense to me that your body runs better on, you know, whole natural foods. But with that being said, we now know that at the end of the day in terms of fat loss, right. And you anytime correct me if I, you know, step out of bounds or I say something incorrect, but you know, if we are looking at fat loss, a calorie is just a calorie. Would you agree with that or disagree?
2: I, I would agree with that. And of course there's a freaking diatribe attached to it, right? So get ready. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, um, a calorie is a calorie, but one of the advantages and you, you mentioned this one, one of the advantages of, of choosing foods that are more towards whole and less towards the refined and highly processed side is that they, tend to be more micronutrient dense. So, mm-hmm. so you, they tend to be more nutrient dense uh, in general. And so you can get more nutrition per calorie uh, out of foods that are less refined and less processed. And there, of course, there are some exceptions with something like protein powder being a, a glaring exception to that. It's highly refined, but also highly nutritious. So there's, there's two aspects here that, that we're looking at. There is the... If I may get jargony here, the the thermic effect of of foods or the amount of calories that you burn just processing them within the body. Foods that are less refined tend to have a higher cost of, of metabolizing or a higher cost of processing within the body. So that can affect the energy in energy out equation. And not all foods are created equal in that respect. Not all the macronutrients are created equal in terms of the amount of calories that it takes for your body to process them. So with protein having the highest uh, cost of processing or the highest thermic effect, and then second in line being carbohydrate and then third in line being fat, um, you can, uh, in theory, create different diets with drastically different amounts of carbohydrate, protein, and fat. And those diets, even though they have a a greater uh, um, net or gross amount of calories, they will have different effects on the body in terms of how much it costs your body to to process these diets. And so um, that's one aspect, the thermic effect of the foods. The other aspect is the satiating effect of the diet. So you can take two diets. Let's say, let's pick round numbers here, like two diets, they're both 2,000 calorie diets. One of the diets will be loaded with ultra-processed, Ultra refined foods. Okay, the other diet will be mostly whole foods and minimally refined foods. Both diets have the same amount of calories, two thousand. Both diets have the same amount of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. One of those diets will leave you fuller, longer, mm-hmm. and and will better control your hunger and will better control your appetite. And the other diet will be very poor in terms of its satiating capacity. And so we have to look at that as being something very important for for the dieting and the weight loss and the the long-term change in body composition. So um, while a calorie is a calorie, yes, and while a macronutrient is a macronutrient, food sources and, of course, the macronutrients themselves can influence eating behavior to the extent that it affects appetite. So the diets that work best in the long term strike a balance between being satiating enough, but also preserving uh, a maximal amount of sanity within the dieter. (laughs) So you you kind of got to find that balance.
0: All right, so I would love to go on to kind of more debunking some topics. So what do you say to those who claim that the cleansing and detoxifying your body is the key to healing various health problems.
2: In the beginning, the reason why cleanses and detoxes get, often get a lot of raves is because they're the lesser of the evil for, for, for a short amount of time. So people who take on these detoxes and cleanses are usually just YOLOing it hard um, for a long enough period of time, for adverse outcomes to manifest, whether it be excess body fat, or whether it be bad habits with various substances, alcohol, drugs, or whatnot. And so the lesser of the evils would be to just hold on, slow down, stop for a second, let's go like seven to 21 days on a diet that is not just overloading you with the calories and junk and everything under the sun.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: it Going on one of these juice detoxes for some people is actually kind of a good break from their, uh, let's say three Big Macs, shakes, and fries a day, and then they just pound some, you know, a fifth of Jack, like uh, through the course of the night or the week, and then of course, you know, wine at breakfast and lunch, um, <laughs> like they do in France, uh, so. That's kind of the appeal of detox is to take this drastic break from your really crappy Western diet lifestyle. But what people don't understand is that uh, you don't have to go on a juice cleanse or, or a detox diet in order to, in quote, detox yourself from, from these bad habits. You can just make some simple adjustments. Uh, so that, that's one aspect of detox, and, and that's why it's so attractive to people because they go from eating, let's say 3,500 calories a day of junk to going on this really, sometimes very low calorie situation. That's like sub thousand calories, sometimes sub 500 calories of juices and, and, and things like that, where the pounds just start flying off you. If you just stopped eating for a week, pounds would, would fly off you. (laughs) Um, but it's not necessarily
0: an optimal way to go about it let's say someone is saying like, oh, well, juicing is going to give me all these vitamins and minerals and, you know, okay, great. That's going to be great for my health. What about just eating those foods in whole natural form, the veggies themselves? Is there a benefit to the liquid form over the whole food form?
2: No, <laughs> just no. Uh, I- I'm not mm-hmm. anti-juice. Uh, my wife makes some really awesome smoothies with with fruit juices and yeah. stuff. Uh, however, there- there's an understanding there that... If we have the objective to economize on calories and maximize the volume of the foods that we eat in order to maximize satiety or maximize hunger control and fullness, then juicing things is, is not going to be the way to do that. Uh, you mentioned how uh, you, you just know at an intuitive level, if somebody puts you on a liquid 800 calorie diet, you know that it's going to work for several weeks, but then you know you're going to go absolutely out of your mind. And the reason is you, um, it's just unsustainable. Uh, you could potentially be losing lean body mass and it happens all the time. But in the case of juices, Mm. in the case of juices, just, just sort of imagine what it would take mentally (laughs) to eat three apples, three big apples. You know, we're usually like tapping out after that apple, that first apple is done. Yeah, you can drink the equivalent of three apples and apple juice inside of like 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then you'll, you'll barely feel full like 10 minutes later. So um, that's sort of the essence between just juicing everything up versus eating the whole foods is yeah. the bulk, the sheer volume of the food. And in, in some cases, the way that the fiber gets kicked out of what you're eating And then, yet in other cases, there's a more insidious problem where, if you were to, for example, put like a whole um, bathtub load of spinach into Mm -hmm. a shake, and that's all—that's what you ate—you're actually better off eating the spinach, getting the chewing sensation, um, getting those satiety signals to the brain, instead of just juicing everything up. And and the insidious thing I was I I was going to mention is there are certain compounds called oxalates that are very high in things like spinach and things like, uh, like beets and rhubarb. And, and so when somebody thinks more is better in terms of something like juicing spinach, where you're just pounding the equivalent of six truckloads of spinach a day, mm-hmm. you are going to be ingesting an inordinately high amount of oxalates. And people who battle kidney stones are going to have issues with that. And so uh, that's that's one example of how juicing can go wrong. It can be a good thing gone wrong. Uh, So, yeah, Mother Nature's intention was not necessarily for us to be juicing everything. It's okay to juice some stuff. Anything in moderation is good. Honestly, anything is good. But with the juicing thing, people tend to overdo it and they turn a good thing into a potentially dangerous thing.
0: Some have claimed that your digestive system needs a break and that if you're always eating whole foods and overloading, quote unquote, overloading, supposedly your digestive system, that other body processes cannot function to the best of their ability or that they cannot eliminate toxins or something along those lines. Do, do you feel that our digestive system needs a break and that could be a justification for juicing or does that not exist?
2: That is one of those bold claims that requires some extraordinary evidence. So if, if somebody presents that claim, then the burden of proof is on them to present the evidence for that wild and wacky claim. Now, I will say, if somebody is overeating in total, in general, then they are burdening multiple systems in the body, not just the digestive system. So right. if they... um modified their diet to be appropriate to a healthy body composition, and then in, in that sense, they're alleviating a lot of the problems that they're, they're dealing with. It's not a matter of, okay, now you've got to fast for four days, or now you've got to cut down to like one meal a day to give your digestive system time to rejuvenate and regenerate. No, you just have to stop your excess and get back to what's healthy, and then, and then you'll be fine.
0: Makes complete sense. <laughs> Great. Um, now, how about the notion or the claim that eating a plant-based diet is superior for optimal health, meaning that they say that you know eating red meat or animal products causes high levels of inflammation in the body. Have you found that in your research?
2: That is a super controversial issue. And the reason it's controversial, yeah. is because it's so hard to study these health outcomes that are associated with these claims. We have to set up studies that have to last over a period of years to follow these disease endpoints. And there's so many potential uh, confounding factors that, that make us at the end of the rainbow say a lot of mays and mites and maybes. So that's why it's, it's controversial because it's hard to study. So sometimes we have to turn to population research to see who's eating what and how healthy they are vegans as a population are healthy are they the healthiest population in the world no not necessarily (laughs) uh the healthiest and longest living populations uh ever studied the majority of them are not strict vegans so what's going on there did they just get lucky do they just you know (laughs) did we just happen to hit the luck of the draw there i think there's a big difference between claiming that uh consuming a plant heavy diet is healthy versus saying total elimination of animal foods and products is optimal because, uh, that the latter is just not true. The mere reality that a vegan diet in order to be optimal must be supplemented with various micronutrients, various essential micronutrients is evidence is immediate evidence that it's not optimal for human health. There, there, there is a lot to be said about that, but, but yeah, just the importance of delineating, a plant-heavy diet is optimal. Uh, an animal-free, 100% diet, not necessarily optimal.
0: Okay, great. Now, how about one topic I love seeing on your page and, and on Instagram is discussing nutrition documentaries. <laughs> so we have had yeah. <laughs> kind of a, a big, I, I don't know, a big explosion of nutrition documentaries you know, in the last few years. So what, what are your general thoughts on them? Is there or and or is there any one nutrition documentary that you feel like, oh, this actually was well presented, not biased, and you uh, trusted the information they presented?
2: OK, OK. Yes, yes. OK, they all are horrible, <laughs> except for one particular documentary that was on the BBC. It's called Clean Eating the Dirty Truth. And you can, you can see the whole thing in full on daily motion. And that's the only diet documentary that I've seen that doesn't have any major issues with conflict with the scientific evidence base. Uh, the rest of them are just, they're just crap. But yeah, documentaries that, that focus on, on keto propaganda all the way to the other side where, uh, documentaries focus on, uh, vegan, a uh, zealotry, those both sides, those both extremes, th- those are the ones that are most popular yeah. because those appeal to people's emotions mm-hmm. the most strongly. And both of them suck. Both of them are an excellent way to dumb down your nutritional IQ. So just avoid them. I would yeah. say avoid nutritional documentaries in general and, or you can watch them with the knowledge that they are mainly for entertainment and that's it.
0: Or to, to get you to side with a certain side of the agreement, not necessarily present both sides. It's to sell you on one yeah. side. And, you know, when I've watched, you know, some Netflix nutrition, you know, documentaries, I went into it like, oh my mm-hmm. gosh, I'm so excited because I want to learn. And within the first five minutes, I'm like, dang it. Like, this is clearly, you know, not presenting both sides. There There's an agenda here, you know, and Kind of some of the more recent ones that have come out. I've uh, there's one that I just cannot bring myself to watch. The other ones I want to watch because I'm going to get questions about them, and I want to know at least have an idea of how to respond. Um, I will say I have yet to publicly respond and give my thoughts on these documentaries because they because they. They, they have a, an intended uh, purpose agenda to get people to really identify and be very emotional about their stance, I don't want to come out and, you know, tell everyone like, hey, this is all BS, <laughs> you know, but if someone DMs me, I will have a discussion. And, you know, I always want to be respectful of other people's viewpoints, like I said, there were some things that I felt about a certain way early on in my fitness journey. And, and I now no longer feel that way. And I think it's important to allow that discussion to happen. The problem is that on social media. It very rarely happens calmly, <laughs> you know? So, um, all right. The last topic I would love to pick your brain on is intermittent fasting. So I get questions on this a lot in terms of, is it, you know, superior for fat loss? And we know that at the end of the day, it comes down to how many calories you, you, you know, intake and expend. So your energy balance, great. But how about the claims that I feel like this is kind of almost in line with maybe like the detoxing claim about like giving your digestive system a break but is there proof that intermittent fasting helps with cell regeneration or just overall kind of the idea of giving your body a break and it being superior in one way or the other or no
2: there are interesting things that are seen in the short term and under a microscope with intermittent fasting and intermittent fasting in it, 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 it encompasses a bunch of variants, right? You have time restricted feeding, uh, where you have a, sh- a shortened window of eating within a single day. Uh, you've got alternate day fasting, where every other day, you're either consuming nothing, or you're consuming only 25% of your typical amount of calories. Uh, and then the third variant would be like multiple day fasting, okay, uh, that you do on an intermittent basis throughout the year. So all of these things, As far as the evidence goes, the research evidence goes, the the, the only thing really that they're consistently being able to see with intermittent fasting in humans is that it enables people to control caloric intake. (laughs) That's the biggest thing. And it's actually quite a, a, um, it's a good thing because then that gives people options aside from running like a daily 500 calorie deficit, right? And trying to sustain that from now till the hereafter. Uh, with other folks, they would actually do better on two of the days a week fasting their way through it, and then the other five days not feeling like they're dieting, right? So um, that could be a personal preference for some people, and that's totally fine. The thing that that really kind of bugs me about the whole intermittent fasting thing is when people attribute Magical things to it beyond that, and the reason why we can be pretty confident that there's no extra special magic to intermittent fasting beyond just regular conventional dieting is because there's multiple studies now comparing them for uh, both body weight, body composition, and various clinical parameters, various cardiometabolic parameters, and guess what—they perform similarly. Whether you do an IF program or whether you do a conventional linear dieting program. When you get to the end of the rainbow, you'll be at the same spot health wise and body comp wise and glucose control wise, insulin sensitivity wise and all this other stuff that they they've actually tested over the course of multiple studies, multiple systematic reviews and meta analyses. Now I can I can send them all to you uh, that basically say, you know what, intermittent fasting, surprisingly enough, can run with regular dieting it has similar results, which is a good thing. But when you say that to people who have put intermittent fasting up on this magical pedestal, they'll go, they'll, they'll be disappointed. Yeah. They'll be like, no, no, it's got some magical stuff. And you have to say, no, 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 that's, that's good that we know that intermittent fasting is actually as good as regular dieting. <laughs> right, right,
0: absolutely. We're not knocking it. We're not knocking it. Yeah. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and the, the really interesting thing, I know this is a little bit of an aside is that alternate day fasting stuff like the five, two program where you're, where you're fasting your way through a couple of days out of the week that uh, had the equivalent ability to preserve lean body mass as did uh, daily caloric restriction. So there are some novel things we're learning about the body in terms of its ability to preserve lean body mass in spite of like not eating much every other day.
0: Right.
2: There's some interesting discoveries there with IF as well that we didn't know before we started studying yeah.
0: Amazing. Great. So the name of the podcast is your best life. And the whole point I want to get across is that there's that that doesn't really exist. You know, there's no one best life. We all have different experiences and different priorities of what, you know, what our best life looks like and different things that have contributed to us individually finding that. So for you, if you had to pick one thing that has contributed to you living your best life, what would that be?
2: Oh, it's definitely my wife. Uh she, you know, when I when I fall off the wagon in life, she just pulls me back up and steers me back in the right direction. So um, yeah, definitely my wife, Jenna.
0: Amazing. And I'm not oh, saying that to so just to her own points. <laughs> right. You're gonna make sure she <laughs> listens to this. <laughs> we will wrap it up. Um, I, I would love for you to um let listeners know where they can find you and um a bit about the AARR as well and where they can find more of your studies.
2: You can find me, dear listeners. Uh, at alanaragon.com. And I have a monthly research review that keeps fitness professionals and enthusiasts on top of the practical science of all this nutrition and and exercise stuff. Uh, It's my baby. It's something that I've been doing since 2008. It is the original uh, monthly research review in the fitness industry. And so I've, I spawned everybody else's (laughs) <laughs> uh, wonderful research review. So I, I'm proud and I'm, I'm I'm happy about having that sort of impact on the industry. But yeah, you can find it at alanaragon.com. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram. Uh, my handle is the Alan Aragon uh, because somebody already got Alan Aragon. <laughs> I, I I don't love myself that much.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. This is one of the most information jam-packed episodes I've done. I would love to have you back on. We will definitely be chatting again more soon. Uh, Stay safe out there in this coronavirus quarantine time. And we'll talk soon. Thank you
2: so much, Anna. You are an absolute superstar. Thanks again. And we'll do this again.
0: (laughs) Bye. That was my deep dive (laughs) into various fitness topics with Alan Aragon. Luca, what did you think? That
1: was jam-packed with information.
0: It really was. I feel like you could listen to that two times and still (laughs) learn.
1: I totally agree. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I actually really like the part when you guys touch on protein intake because it's some kind of a controversial thing. You receive a lot of messages about it. Mm -hmm. And what he said, I think it's a great point. If someone is overweight or severely overweight, the protein intake should match their goal weight instead of their actual weight right now. And I think that's a I think I think that's a great point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Protein needs is such a hot topic. So what a lot of people are holding on to is the RDI, the recommended daily intake. Which what that amount is, is the bare minimum to survive. that the right. average population needs to survive. Right. Yeah, like that's <laughs> not even taking into account activity level. Let's say you're not exercising. That's not taking into account just even moving about in your life. That is the bare, bare minimum. And a lot of people cling on to that as, well, this is how much I need. And then you start working out but your protein needs significantly go up, you know? So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a hot topic. Um, so, and how about Luca? I asked him your question about <laughs> nutrition documentaries.
1: Well, I have to say, see, it makes sense. They, they are really like following an agenda. Most of yeah. them, I really want to watch the documentary that he actually recommended. Uh, what was it? Clean Eating, The Dirty Truth. I really want to watch, I uh, actually watched that documentary, but for you know, everything else that I watched, I found myself almost convinced because how do they present it? Right. It's very entertaining. They they seem like, you know, to have a point on everything. But then when you actually dive and try to look at what they said in the documentary, almost everything can be debunked.
0: Right. And I really would love to hear what you guys have to say about this episode and some things that we debunked let me know what you guys think in the facebook group or on instagram leave us a review shoot me a dm thanks so much for listening and we will catch you guys next time bye Bye. And that is it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, I would love for you to share with a friend, spread the word and help us grow our tribe. Please rate and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes each week. You can also follow us on Instagram and join our Facebook group, both under the same name, Your Best Life Podcast, to keep the conversation going. You can also send me an email at yourbestlifepodcast at gmail.com and you just might be featured in a future episode. Your Best Life is a Gallery Media Group original production.